0: to max politics this is ben max from gotham gazette a publication of citizens union foundation Thanks very much for tuning in here to this episode of the show. We are speaking here on Monday, June 6th, 2022. The 2022 New York State Legislative Session has just concluded with a long series of major policy decisions, including many bills that passed both houses of the legislature and will now either be signed or vetoed by Governor Kathy Hochul. Several high-profile items that did not pass both houses of the legislature. We've got a full rundown for you on the high profile stuff at least there were hundreds and hundreds of bills passed so we don't have every detail of it but we have a big rundown for you at gothicbizette.com if you want to look at what was passed by both houses and not passed in the final days of the state legislative session that included uh one all-nighter for the state senate and a couple of all-nighters for the state assembly and uh lots of typical albany business there but anyway my guest today was not only a key figure in that legislative session and many preceding it, but is now leaving the legislature after 18 years. State Senator Diane Savino is with me today to reflect on her 18 years in the legislature, the interesting twists and turns of her career, the bigger picture of New York state and city politics and government she's been a part of and a party too. Uh, Senator Savino is a Democrat representing the 23rd State Senate District, which includes a swath of Staten Island and a chunk of Southern Brooklyn. Uh, She was a founding member back in 2011 of the controversial Independent Democratic Conference or IDC and turned out to be its last uh, politically surviving member in the legislature after winning her reelection when others didn't and sticking with the legislature uh, now until uh, through here in 2022 and returning to the fold with the mainland Democratic Conference over the last two two-year sessions, during which time Democrats had uh, majorities and then super majorities in both houses of the legislature and passed a very long list of democratic, liberal, progressive, whatever you wanna call it, uh, priorities. And Senator Savino has had a focus on labor. Uh, She has also helped pass legislation related to medical marijuana, uh, domestic workers' bill of rights, and other issues that we'll get into with her. And here are her highlights of her tenure. Uh, She was a vocal supporter of Eric Adams in last year's mayoral race, which she, of course, won. Uh, So she's seen a lot and been a part of a lot in her tenure, which uh, has coincided with, as she said in her closing remarks on the Senate floor, quite a few governors and lieutenant governors a whole bunch of major New York political figures resigning or being forced from office. Uh, And in recent years, as I said, this democratic dominance of state government that led to a really long list of priorities being passed on a whole uh, wide variety of issues. And we'll get into that in just one moment with State Senator Diane Savino. As I said at the top, uh, you can check GothamGazette.com for any of our recent reporting on both the state legislative session and what's happening in New York City government. It is budget season in New York City. A a budget deal has to come together between Mayor Eric Adams and the City Council by the end of this month, June. Uh, So we are closely following that at Gotham Gazette. And we've also been, of course, dipping into everything that's been happening around redistricting with the major changes in some of the districts for U.S. House seats in New York, uh, some really interesting races developing. We've talked to some of the candidates involved here on the podcast, and we're following more at uh, in our reporting at Gotham Gazette. Also here on the podcast, we've spoken in recent weeks with uh, guests, including... City Council Carlina Rivera, who's now running for Congress in the very crowded 10th District of New York, which is a wide open race um, because of how things have shaked out after redistricting. We've also had some other state senators on the show recently, including State Senator Andrew Gennardis, whose district neighbors uh, Senator Savino's. Uh, and, and a bunch of other great guests, elected officials, candidates, advocates, experts on uh, biking in New York City, on workplace trends, on a whole bunch of issues. So you can find those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, or at the Gotham Gazette website. Okay, my guest today is State Senator Diane Savino, a Democrat representing the 23rd State Senate District, which includes parts of Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn. Senator Savino, thank you for joining me. How are you? I am well, Ben. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, like yourself, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot going on and, pay, you know, a lot happening in New York politics. So it's been uh, a whirlwind last, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. Um, so a lot going on, but, uh, but doing okay. Um, you have decided not to seek reelection this year. That decision came amid a lot of questions about what your district may be changing. No. No. I, see. no, I had made for, that for those decision. for those who are listening. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Senator Sabino was making a face as I was saying that, as we can see okay. each other on video here on the Zoom. Okay. So go ahead. No,
1: so I had decided after the last election in 2020 that I was pretty much done, okay. um, and that I was not going to run again in 2022. I mean, I think for a lot of people in this business, you have to know when it's time to move on when you've accomplished what you want to do, and that you know it's time for someone else. and And I think too many people think that no one else can do this, that somehow or other the world will end if they're not there to serve in this district. And, you know, my predecessor, I shouldn't say my predecessor, but, you know, we had on Staten Island, I, I like to joke now that I'm the longest serving senator in Staten Island, except for it's John Markey who served 54 years. Like the idea of serving in office for 54 years is unbelievable to me. But I knew after the 2020 election that it was time for me, you know, to start thinking about something else while I'm young enough to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also well, what, have,
0: what made you think that, though, I mean, just because it's like, OK, uh, basically two decades in this job and it's and I want to have a what's I guess we could call for you a third act because you had a career yes. before going into the legislature. Yes,
1: yes. exactly. So, you know, I, when I ran for office in 2004, I was very happy in the labor movement. I was the vice president of one of the municipal unions. I, you know, I I was the political director. I ran campaigns. I raised money for candidates. I really enjoyed doing that. It never dawned on me to run for office. I was recruited to run for office by David Patterson and Liz Kruger and Eric Schneiderman. And uh, my initial reaction was, no, I'm not qualified. I think that's typical of most women. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that I could be more effective in the legislature for the issues I cared about labor issues, working people, social services. I represented the Social Service Employees Union, uh, and we had a very hostile federal government. George Bush was the president. Uh, He was running for re-election. I didn't believe John Kerry was going to win. And so I made a decision that I could be more effective there. And as you mentioned in your opening, I've spent a lot of years working on labor issues, working families issues, um, trying to make government more fair for people that, for which society and life is just not fair. And at some point you realize you, you can be more effective somewhere else. So I came to that conclusion. I've accomplished just about everything I wanted to do in the Senate. And now it's time for me to go do something else. And so after 2020, I was like, I'm done and I want to leave and I'm not running again in 2022. And so it really didn't matter what the district was going to look like. I didn't really factor that in.
0: Okay. Okay. You didn't let me finish my my question, but <laughs> sorry, but that's that's okay. You could we do that as much as you'd like here because uh, the floor is yours, more or less. Um, got it. Okay, so that's interesting. We'll, we'll maybe we'll wrap up as as we might about you know what you're thinking about uh, doing next. But there's a lot to discuss about what you've just been doing over these nearly two decades. So um, I mentioned a couple things in the opening: uh, medical marijuana, domestic workers' bill of rights. What do you want to highlight? You know, What are the highlights for you of things that you've really focused on? There's obviously, and feel free to name those as well, there's obviously things that you were part of that the legislature passed, you work with the governor on, et cetera. But in terms of your personal priorities, bills that you really – uh, you know, either sponsored or crafted, or took leadership on. What are, what are the highlights for you of your tenure that you know really make you uh, feel proud as you're as you're wrapping up in the legislature?
1: Well, that's an interesting point. So, if you had ever been in my office in Albany, and other people have come in, you you would have seen my walls are covered in what we call pin certificates. They are you know the fancy uh, bills that you can request, and you know with the governor's signature on them, you hang them on your wall. And I had probably Maybe about 100 or so. I think I have about 140 bills chaptered into law. Um, The vast majority of them are labor related. Um, Some of them are banking related when I chaired the banking uh, committee, but mostly they're labor issues of the 140 that were hanging along the walls in my office. I only took eleven home. The rest of them, I found the people they were written for, and I gave them to them. I said, "You know, come and come and pick them up now." And if you act now, I'll throw in a plaque and a hat. (laughs) You accumulate a lot of stuff Um, in this business, Ben. You have no idea how much crap I have. um, But I only took eleven home. Uh, Eleven that I want to personally keep and hang on the walls of my own house. And they um, are—I won't go through all eleven, but of them, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. I passed that bill with uh, Keith Wright. and David Patterson was the governor then. That was the first domestic workers' bill of rights in the country rectifying a more than 85-year inequity uh, when the federal government, under FDR, who has been one of my champions, who was a former member of the New York State Senate, uh, decided when they passed the National Labor Relations Act to leave behind farm workers and domestic workers because they couldn't get Southern Dixiecrats to, to get beyond the idea of granting labor rights to predominantly Black women at the time. Now, domestic workers are still women of color, but they're not just Southern Black women. So that bill, to me, was historic in nature. Uh, And it was not because I did the work, but because it was driven by a group of women, the Domestic Workers United, who came to Albany every day and refused to give up. They walked the halls. They convinced people that that they should be given decency and dignity in the workplace. And so the passage of that bill, which then led to several other states eventually adopting it, we still haven't done it in the federal government, is incredibly important to me. And that's probably one of the bills I'm most proud of. Um, The Wage Theft Protection Act, also a really thoughtful piece of legislation. And why do I call it thoughtful? Because by the time we passed it, it was an H print. That means we went from A, B, C, D, that's how many amendments it went through to finally get it right, to recognize how vulnerable low wage workers are in this state. They get ripped off every day by their employers. That bill came home with me. Medical marijuana, of course, so difficult to get done, uh, largely because um, we were fighting the governor every step of the way. The same governor who claimed to champion marijuana fought me every step of the way on that bill. And there there are a few others. Um, A lot of them are misclassification of workers. But of the 140, 11 came home with me. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. What's one thing? that you didn't get done that you wish that you wish you had gotten done legislatively
1: gig workers. Um, I've been Mm -hmm. saying this for the past six years to anybody in the labor movement who will listen, the world of work is changing and the labor movement needs to change with it. And they have been slow to respond to it because they don't know how to grasp it. And they're trying to take, you know, labor law, which is very inflexible and apply it to a flexible workforce. People who don't want to work nine to five, people who don't want to punch the proverbial clock, people who want that flexibility, whether you're a a driver, whether you're a food delivery person, whether you're a freelancer, but all of those workers need the same protections under labor law that the factory worker needed 85 years ago when the Fair Labor Standards Act was adopted. Those same workers need to be able to count on social security and unemployment insurance and workers' comp, and they're not getting it. And because I can't get people to the table to be able to work together, it failed. It's incredibly frustrating. But that's something that has got to be done.
0: Mm, interesting. And that and that's about the the worker classification question. Yes. No. Yeah. Because one, by by the
1: way, one side wants to continue to shoehorn people into a simple definition of what an employee is. It doesn't work for this flexible workforce. And others want flexibility. Neither the twain shall meet here. And it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And by the way, many of these workers are undocumented. Undocumented workers are not covered. Uh, cannot be classified as employees for a variety of reasons. And they don't want to be either for another variety of reasons. So it, it makes it even more complicated. But to the extent that people continue to talk past each other instead of to each other, we will not solve this problem.
0: Um, I want to zoom way out in a minute, but but this redistricting process that just happened, uh, how badly did Democrats uh, in, in the legislature screw up here? Was, was there something that you can point to that was um, you know, really the, the sort of big mistake that led things to turn out the way it did with the, uh, you know, the court overruling the maps that the legislature drew and passed, and then it going obviously into this special master situation. Um, was it because the legislature didn't insist on the redistricting commission passing some sort of final map that things really went awry? Did the legislature just overreach in, in some gerrymandering, especially of the congressional districts? What what would you point to here as, as, as the real mistakes in this process leading to where we wound up?
1: Well, I think we have to go back to 2013, right? When the original independent redistricting um, constitutional amendment was adopted and then put before the voters, right? So it was a flawed process to begin with because it set up this dynamic where the commission that was going to come out as a result of it was never going to be able to come to a, a a unified decision. If you're going to have X number of Republicans, X number of Democrats, they were never ever going to come to a decision. So, and we saw that happen in real time. So when the Independent Redistricting Commission, both Democrats and Republicans, could not present unified maps of the legislature, we had a problem. So if we made a mistake, um, and I don't like to be critical of the people who did it, you know, because I think they, I don't think they did it intentionally. But if we made a mistake, was underestimating. Um, how important independent redistricting was to the voters. Because they said a mess, They sent a message in 2014 when they said, we don't want you people drawing the lines. They reiterated that message in 2020 when they rejected a constitutional amendment that was allegedly a fix to the 2014. And they said, we don't want you people drawing the lines. Mm-hmm. And then we tried to draw the lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the courts interpreted what the voters did. See, people don't understand when you write legislation, you have to be crystal clear. The intent of the legislature has to be clear to a judge, and the judge looked at it and said, "The voters don't want you people drawing the lines," and that's where we wound up.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the 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 idea that the commission didn't by law seemingly have to come to to some you know final agreement on on maps seems to be a big big issue there. Um, mm-hmm. So, eighteen years in the legislature in the state senate. Um how much have have things changed in that time from your perspective? Uh, oh, tremendously.
1: Right. Oh, <laughs> it's a completely different place.
0: Right. What's so just what, what, yeah, what the th- biggest
1: change. Th- 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 and I hate to just interrupt you, but I just no, like to
0: think question, about
1: sure. <laughs> when I of of the people who were there when I walked in the door. Um there were 62 members of the Senate between both conferences. Of the entire 62, the only remaining members are myself, Liz Kruger, Kevin Parker, Neil Breslin, Toby Stavisky, and uh, Jose Marco Serrano. Mm. That's it. Six. Even Andre Stewart-Cousins wasn't there yet.
0: Mm.
1: And Joe Adabo came the next year. So there are only six members who are still members of the original 62. So there's been an entire, you know, turnover of the Senate. Yeah. So with that goes, you know, a tremendous institutional memory. Um, You know, a lot of the, a lot of the younger members, I I watched them struggle with trying to understand some of the complicated funding formulas that are baked into the state budget, you know, and and many of them have said, what are we going to do when you leave? I said, pay attention, you'll learn, but there is some benefit to having long serving members because Some of the crazy things we've done over the years, it's hard to explain to people. They're like, well, how did that happen? You know, the Medicaid redesign team and the things that they did. And so you need institutional memory sometimes, whether it be members or staff, because if not, newer members struggle with trying to put together, you know, a $220 billion budget and make the right decisions. So, you know, when I first got there, I can still remember the early days. You sit there, and it's it's like walking into the middle of a movie where everybody knows what's happening, but you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would sit next to John Sabini, who was you know to the right of me, and all I would do is to ask him a million questions, like, "What's happening? What are they talking about? Why is this? Why are they doing this?" It's 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 a challenge to become a legislator. You know, any anybody can be a candidate. Anybody can be a politician. It's not easy to be a legislator.
0: Mm-hmm. Has the has the culture in Albany improved over the last number of years, whether it's the last just four years since, you know, there was the big shakeup in the Senate and Democrats took control the last decade or so. Has the, has there been a cultural shift for for better or worse, um, you know, in, in recent years?
1: I, I, I don't know how I would describe the cultural shift. I mean, <laughs> I never had an issue in Albany
0: mm-hmm.
1: with you know the the culture again i was a a woman in the labor movement so i was used to dealing with you know an old male industry there mm-hmm. so i can't i can't say i noticed any major shift maybe others might see it differently
0: what about in so terms I can't really of answer the, that? Uh, what about in terms of sort of the um just the the ways that the legislature and even the legislature and the executive branch working together do business, has there been um, a, a noticeable shift in that regard? Is there some more sort of... Um, Understanding of, of responsiveness to voters. Is there more transparency in any way? Is there less transparency? Is there a different, you know, sort of sense of uh, collaboration? You know, ha- have, have things changed at all recently with I don't know, seemingly Cuomo and Hochul. Well, Cuomo Hochul, there's even less, you know, there's there's a robust press presence. But, you know, like certain outlets have just, you know, been struggling and really hollowed out. You know, there's there's a whole mm-hmm. different, you know, it's things have shifted over time. It hasn't all been at once other than the Cuomo Hochul shift, of course. But, um, you know, any other sort of pieces of the equation that you've noticed the ways that people are sort of doing business with each other have shifted or is it more just a, a slow change over time?
1: Well, it's certainly less. It, I would say this administration is it's certainly less uh, antagonistic. Now, remember, I've been there through five governors now: mm-hmm. Pataki, who and and then Spitzer, and then Patterson, and then Cuomo, and now Hochul. So, um, you know, Pataki was probably the the most boring of the, of the crew. (laughs) Um, But I was, I've also been through a complete changeover in the, what we call the LCA, the Legislative Correspondents Association, you know, the, the days of Fred Dicker in the New York post and him having his own studio right there. Uh, It was a very different time before Twitter, before the the onset of the blogs. you know, everyone, you know, racing to see what was, you know, what was being written. I think was first, it was Ben, um, Ben Smith before Liz, is Benjamin and like so? It's been a complete change in the way you know news out of Albany is reported and reporters interact with us. But also, the, the, yes, there is a difference. I would say between this administration and the legislature. But still, you know, her she has her detractors in the legislature because you'll never be pure enough for them. She's not as hostile. She doesn't get down in the in the you know, mud, and roll around with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know she's a tough chick from Buffalo, but not quite like Andrew Cuomo was. David Patterson's administration was at war with us all the time for different reasons. And Elliot was Elliot. <laughs> well, has the that has sense, the sense to you.
0: has the party you know has the Democratic Party m- moved too far to the left? Have the legislative leaders done you know from your perspective? Have the legislative leaders done a solid enough jobs sort of, um, finding, you know, finding common ground and, and bringing, you know, such disparate, um, you know, representatives and districts and, and interests, uh, you know, to some, some common ground and, and, you know, moderating to the extent you'd like to see how, how has that gone these last few years, especially what have you made of that? Because at times, obviously, um, you know, you've you've been a voice of of moderation, obviously reflecting some of your politics, but your district. Um, how, how has that gone from your perspective?
1: I think that's a perennial problem for any leader. So just as the first time we took the majority in 2009 and 10, there was so much pent up demand to do things that had been bottled up forever. And we had a very narrow majority then. You had 32 members at any given time you know, one of them could hijack the agenda. And quite honestly, they did. There were days yes. when yeah, we had members, forget about those who, you know, would literally, you know, pull a Senate coup. We had members who would lock themselves in their office because they weren't getting what they wanted. So it was very difficult to get anything done. And then there were members who had campaigned on issues that they really never had any intention of voting for because they thought it would never happen. So suffice to say, we weren't successful back then. in In having a a supermajority, I think it comes with almost as many challenges as having a narrow majority. And I don't envy the majority leader because she has to find ways to balance the needs of, of members who are at risk in a general election against the members who are at risk in a primary. And they are not the same thing at all. The beauty of having as many members as you have when it's, you know, when you have a supermajority is you can let people off. The problem for that is that's not sometimes good enough for the advocates. And I think to the so so there are always there's always going to be people who say, well, you know, the party's moved too far to the left. And then there are others who say, well, we're not far left enough. It it doesn't matter. I mean, our party is always going to be a giant tent of people who are more more like a circular firing squad than it is a giant tent. That's just the Democratic Party. But it's how do you protect if you're a leader? How do you protect your conference? from, you know, being from doing harm to each other. And, you know, I don't again, as I said, I don't envy her. You know, that's her challenge. Um, and so, so far, you know, she's been able to handle it. But this is going to be an incredibly difficult election cycle. And I don't think anybody believes it's not going to be.
0: Mm. Um. The, I mean, it seems like the recent um, you know, leak, I mean, we'll see what happens in these. Any minute, any minute, as we're talking here, there could be Supreme Court decisions coming down. We're talking here on Monday, June 6th. Uh, it doesn't seem like today, but any, any time this week, there could be Supreme Court decisions on Roe v. Wade, on, uh, on certain gun rights that affect New York quite a lot. And, and both these issues, including other current events, have, have obviously altered the electoral playing field somewhat. But um, your, you know, your prediction is shared, shared fairly widely that this is going to be a difficult year uh, for Democrats. Um, as you say, though, a supermajority in the state Senate makes a Republican return to power there very unlikely, at least in this election cycle. Um, but, but however, yeah, go ahead.
1: We have, you know, you can't ignore. You know, the, the challenges we're going to face in places like Long Island and in some places like the Hudson Valley. And, you know, we as Democrats cannot rest on our laurels and hope that, you know, an, an, an adverse decision from the Supreme Court on abortion is going to save us. Mm-hmm. Because, you, you know, if you're going to assume that women in New York or Democrats in New York are more concerned about abortion where or are they more concerned about the price of gas and getting kicked off the subway platform? You know, I think New Yorkers can figure out both. In New are York, missing- there is no threat to a woman's right to choose because we passed the Reproductive Health Act. Um, We've taken some other actions this week. So I don't think we should should be cavalier that we're going to win simply because of that message. I don't think that's the case.
0: Are there mistakes that the legislature and or governor have made that make this a worse playing field for Democrats than it could have been? Are there things that should have either been done or not done um, that that are top of mind for you as you look ahead to the elections that are coming and Democrats' potential struggle in a variety of swing districts?
1: Well, I think some of us have been pretty clear that we, we should have made some more changes to the mail law that we passed in 2019 and that we should have and we could have, you know, added back the ability of judges to make decisions. And, you know, there were some members who felt we absolutely could not allow judges to consider dangerous. And so that would be a step backwards. And quite honestly, I disagree with that. And I disagree with that vocally. Everyday judges make decisions based upon dangerousness. When they issue orders of protection, when they issue orders of, when, we're, when they're gonna issue red flag orders that we just, again, updated the other day. When they make determinations about whether or not a person should be involuntarily committed because they are a danger to themselves or other people. They make decisions based upon whether or not children should be taken away from their parents and remanded because they are at risk to life and or health by a parent who is dangerous to them. So it's silly to say that judges are incapable of determining whether or not a person is dangerous. And I think to the extent that we continue to, you know, to ignore that, and the press can find examples every day of some person who's been arrested numerous times and has now committed a violent felony, it's going to come back to haunt us. We can balance our our need to create a fairer criminal justice system and protect public safety. And until we're able to do that, this is going to hang over our head.
0: The um, one of the things that seems to me to be at play, though, uh, is also goes a little bit back to what you're talking about, about Democrats and a circular firing squad. Um, You know, the Republican sort of message control around bail reform from before it was even passed has Mm -hmm. been you know, sort of a case study that could be taught in political science schools. Right. It's like been this unbelievably focused campaign and messaging that sometimes doesn't even it doesn't even matter what the facts say or what the headlines really mean or if there were, you know, uh, interpretations that, that were off. It has been this very focused campaign, whereas on the Democratic side, it's been a lot of infighting about what it should have been or what it could be. And nobody's really been out there even defending it. Um, you know, you get you get some here or there, but mostly, you know, and some of that goes back to the legislative leaders are both not particularly sort of such active public figures, you know, going out there and, and fighting things, although majority Leader to cousins is, is always, uh, you know, receptive to interview requests and so forth. But um, how, how much has it been that sort of um, uh, imbalance between how the two parties have um, talked about criminal justice reform?
1: Well, it's a very simple rule in politics. If you have to spend more than five sentences explaining something, you've lost the argument. It's it's just very simple. By the way, that's I keep telling that to the cryptocurrency industry. These guys can't get out of their own way because you can't explain cryptocurrency to anybody. No one knows what it is. They can't figure it out. Try and explain blockchain to someone. They look at you like what? Mm -hmm. So, again, the Republicans are much better on messaging on this because it appeals to people's most basic fear, fear that someone's going to come take their stuff and kill them. Right. It's very simple. We get into this long running discussion about, you know, inherent injustice and unfairness and you've lost the public court. All they know is somebody got arrested and they got they got released and now they're hurting somebody else. That's it. And that person's going to come and take my stuff and hurt me. And you let that happen. Democrats. Hmm.
0: You've lost the argument. What, um, is there something that needs to change? Uh, still in Albany around um, things related to, you know, misconduct of various kinds, the stuff that caught up Brian Benjamin, it seems allegedly, uh, Governor Cuomo had a series of scandals, lots of people in and out of the legislature who've had problems. Um, is, Is there something structurally that needs to change? Is this more about voters needing to sort of pay more attention and vet people better is it because Albany is so far removed from so much that, you know, maybe the capital should be in New York City, where there's even more scrutiny and attention on what happens? Anything you think? uh, you know, structurally that could still be changed about, um, you know, this sort of parade of, of horribles that we've seen over the years.
1: I don't think structurally anything, I, I'm not sure what we could do any, any more on a structural basis. It's all, it's illegal to steal from the public. It's illegal to commit the crime of public corruption. Well, we, we just need better people to run for office. People just need to stop acting that way. I mean, mm-hmm. so we could, we could increase, you know, the, the ethics fines, we could do all of that stuff, you can't make people inherently honest if they're dishonest. And unfortunately, you know, the the criteria for running for office in the Constitution for a state senator is you have to be 18 years old, a resident of the district for at least one year, unless it's a reapportionment year. And um, that's pretty much it. I want a citizen. I'm sorry, you have to be a citizen. It doesn't say that you have to be an honest person. It doesn't say you have to be ethical just until you get caught. I mean, and I don't know how you fix that. And I really don't. Maybe. Maybe if, if, you know, the, if it was seen as a, a better profession, I, I, maybe I'm not saying that correctly. I don't think people see public service as something they want to do anymore. And that may be why we're, we're attracting um, scoundrels. You know, I've served with statesmen and scoundrels and some of the scoundrels were pretty smart um, and they've done some good things for, pub, for the public. But at the same time, they weren't there for the right reasons. So I don't really know how we get better people to run. Mm-hmm. And how do we get them to want to do it and give of the give up your entire life. Your entire life belongs to your constituency when you get elected. And I think unlike when I first got elected there is a marked difference now because, you know, social media uh, exposes you and everything you do 24 hours a day. You know, your your family gets exposed, your life. And after a while, people might look at it and say, who the hell needs that? Why do I want to do that for $110,000 a year? I'm not doing it. So I think it's a combination of things that is, you know, a, a, distract, a, a deterrence for people to do it. Um, and when you do that, then you can you attract you know, people of lesser
0: character. Is there something that drives you crazy about politics or government that, you know, is just like the thing that always bothers you? Is it people saying one thing to your face and then doing another? Is it, um, it, you know, is it the way that people politic around an issue? Is it the way that you can't get a government agency to, you know, respond in a timely fashion? Is there anything, you know, is there anything as you're, as you're leaving uh, at least this version of government service that's like sticks, sticks in your craw so much?
1: Um, no, listen, I'm pretty relentless. If I want the answer to something, I will get it. I would say the thing that drives me craziest about um, politics in general is people are not particularly thoughtful. Um, And for legislators, what, what drives me crazy is they don't read bills like people laugh at me. They go, you read that stuff. I go, yes, you don't vote on ideas. You vote on legislation. Read the bills. If you want to know, you know, what's what, what we're doing, read, learn to read legislation, because if you want the state to adopt something, you should know what's in it. And if you're going to write a law, you better learn how to read it. And That's what drives me crazy. That's what I said earlier. It's easy to be a candidate and an activist. It's easy to be a politician. It is not easy to be a legislator. And then when you get mad at judges, you can't get mad at them because you wrote a shitty law. And shitty laws uh, get written every day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Any particular ones recently that come to mind?
1: Uh, no, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hold my
0: tongue. The, <laughs> Do some my, of the ones I voted no on, and you'll figure it all out. All right, good, we'll take a look at that. Uh, I'm speaking here with uh, State Senator Diane Sabino, a Democrat representing the 23rd State Senate District, which includes parts of Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn. We're speaking here on Monday, June 6, 2022, just a few days after the 2022 state legislative session wrapped up, Senator Savino is not running for re-election this year and, and wrapping up nearly two decades in the state legislature, in the state Senate. Uh, and we're chatting here on some of her recent and long-term reflections on that. Um, so let's go back to, uh, as I said in the introduction, you're a founding member in 2011 of the Independent Democratic Conference. Um, remind people the rationale And give us now the sort of long term step back assessment as to whether, you know, you said in your closing remarks on the Senate floor that you're you're still proud of, Mm -hmm. um, proud of it. Uh, So remind uh, us and listeners to this who some were were probably not around um, then or paying attention to New York politics then the rationale and, and give us that long-term perspective on, you know, your assessment of, of what it accomplished and, and, and was able to do.
1: Well, as I, as as I mentioned to you earlier, after I got elected to the Senate in 2005, you know, we were in the, we were in the minority then. David Patterson was our leader. He went on to become Lieutenant Governor. And then as a (laughs) And the first of many governors resigning in scandal, Elliot Spitzer left us and David Patterson became the governor. Uh, Myself and, you know, Jeff Klein and Malcolm Smith, who was our leader at the time, minority leader at the time, and a few others, we uh, embarked on running the Senate Democratic Campaign Committee. Our goal was to win the majority. We started picking off one seat after another, first of one on Long Island. We elected Craig Johnson to the Senate in a special election. We took on a race up in the North Country, uh, where we had in many respects, no shot in hell of winning, where it was the longest serving Republican seat in the history of the state. And we won. We elected Darrell Albertine in, f- in February in a, with snow was like four feet deep every day. We won that seat. And then in the Obama year of 2008, uh, we picked up two more seats and we won a majority. It's amazing. Right. First Democratic majority in more than 50 years. And walking in the door, we were crippled from the first day. Uh, we had four members: uh, Senators Espada, uh, who went on to, you know, to launch the Senate coup in 2009. Senator Monserrat, who joined him before he was eventually ousted from the Senate for a misdemeanor felony a misdemeanor conviction. Uh, Senator. Ruben Diaz, who left us to join the New York State, New York City Council. He was a colorful character. And Carl Krueger, who also went on to prison. We had a very tumultuous two years in the New York State Senate as a as majority, the first Democratic majority. We couldn't get much of anything done. We were deadlocked on a daily basis. As many of you followed us then, we were embroiled in a in a six-week coup where we were completely shut down. It was chaos on a daily basis. And after um, the two years, I would say we won fair and square in 2008. And in 2010, we lost fair and square. Senator John Sampson, who by then was the new Senate leader because we, they overthrew Senator Smith. Um, he was then himself under investigation and facing indictment for embezzlement of, of whatever. It's a long story. In any event, uh, the 2011, we lost. 2011 um, session was about to start. And the, the conference was going to continue to maintain him as leader among some other decisions they made. And we were done. We were just finished. We were tired of the corruption. We were tired of the chaos. And we... Didn't want to join the Republicans, but we didn't know what else to do. And the night before the um, Governor Cuomo's first state of the state, we met in my apartment in Albany, myself, Jeff Klein, Dave Valesky, and a newly elected member, David Carlucci, and we formed the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, um, and our staff. And then we you know, made a deal with uh, Senator Skelos, who was in, back as as a majority leader. And he agreed to recognize our conference. And we held a press conference the next morning about an hour before Governor Cuomo's state of the state. Many people think that he was involved. He wasn't. Did he benefit over the years from the creation of the IDC? Without a doubt. But he was not involved. He didn't help us. Um, In fact, in many ways, he hurt us. Suffice to say in 2018, he did everything possible to try and defeat us because he thought it would help him in his primary against Cynthia Nixon. So uh, we did it for the right reasons. We were over the years, we were able to push the Republicans to do things that they felt were they were very uncomfortable, whether it was marriage equality. You know, I have this famous picture of the four of us and Cynthia Nixon in our office when she came to thank us profusely for making sure she could marry her wife. She forgot that. I don't. I have that picture. (laughs) Um, I have a lot of pictures of people with us who now want to pretend that, you know, they didn't support us. But my office is a veritable treasure trove Mm. of potential political blackmail. (laughs) So you've been warned, all of you. Um, But we did a lot of really good things over the years. Um, You know, we were infamous for our weekly reports and our charts and you know, we pushed the Republicans to raise the minimum wage, not once, but twice. We forced them to go forward on paid family leave. It was an idea that was, I believe, really important at the time. But, you know, all things come to an end. And when Donald Trump got elected, I think, you know, people were looking for not just a way to punish him, but to punish anybody. They were so angry with him and anybody that could be remotely associated with any Republicans. And so, you know, the voters turned on us.
0: What about the notion that, you know, by sharing power, you know, you you didn't have the ability in most cases to, um, you know, to create, to be part of a Democratic majority in the session, but that um, lots of the sort of compromise work wound up helping Republicans maintain a majority, you know, that it wasn't it wasn't an all in sort of Democratic effort to flip the chamber and have full Democratic control of the of the legislature. And maybe maybe you didn't think that that would be such a good thing as based off of your experience, yes. as you just noted.
1: There was there was a time. I mean, the, people forget the Republicans always had 32 members. There was never a time during the Era when the IDC existed, they didn't because they always had Simka Felder who joined. He actually was a member of their conference, even though he was a registered Democrat. So as long as he was there, they had 32 members. They didn't need us. We just didn't want to sit with the Democrats. And some of it was personality driven. We were at war with each other for a long time. And, you know, people don't know just how nasty it did get. I mean, they tried to get me indicted uh, and I've forgiven them. <laughs> You know, they tried to get other members, you know, in trouble. They would feed stories to the press. And, you know, they outed my personal life with, you know, Jeff. I mean, look, that's just politics. Politics is a blood sport. You, you, know, you you accept it and you move on. And so I don't hold anybody, you know, I don't hold it against anybody, but at the end of the day, we didn't like each other. And that was part of the problem. And, you know, it, it ended badly. But as that's why I said on the floor, I also I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to senator stewart cousins because she didn't have to accept me back into the conference but she did and she's been you know very gracious we have a you know i like to think we have a really good relationship i put you know the past behind she put the past behind and we all work together Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day that's what the public wants from us
0: anything you would have you would do differently if you could do it again
1: knows? you know million things in my life i do differently if i could do it again. i would have gone to law school
0: well well specifically related to the idc
1: you know i don't know maybe if we could have found a way to uh, resolve it sooner it might have been better for all of us but mm-hmm. you know they say time and tide you know mm-hmm.
0: why do you think you were the the lone remaining uh senator i mean obviously the the primary challenges in 2018 to uh, most of the rest of the conference were much stronger than the one you faced. Um, you, you know, everybody's got their own political brand and their own political operation and so forth. But um, any reflections on why you were the sort of last last person standing of that group, which wound up growing, we should say, you know, we right. uh, it, it grew uh, by at least a couple more members over time, including Jose Peralta and Jesse Hamilton.
1: Um, I think a couple of things. One, uh, my my standing in the labor movement, I think for many people, for many for the, the the political enemies, put me off limits in some respect. That's the first thing. The second thing is I I have always had a good working relationship with all of my colleagues, and so I think that they didn't take it as personally with me. I also wasn't the subject of all of the. Um, negative press. Unlike Jeff, you know, he became the focus of everything, the the daily attacks in the news, the, you know, the the criticism, it was always him. So after a while, you know, your constituents start to say to yourself, well, maybe this guy's really not that good. Like, so, and I, I, didn't, I didn't suffer from that. Unlike, um, unlike he did, and I also, I, you know, I, I say all the time, I represent normal people. They actually like, they like bipartisanship. And I think that's also part of it. I live in a place where you, it's the last part of New York City where you have a viable Republican Party. So Staten Islanders don't look at, you know, Democrats and Republicans working together as, as a bad thing. They actually prefer it. They want us to work together. But they see that type of bit of partisanship on both sides as a negative, so I never hid from the IDC. I included it in all of my campaign literature. We would talk about it. And people liked that. The Staten Island Advance was a big supporter of, you know, the idea of an independent democratic conference. So I think that participated. Where are like Jeff had the Riverdale press who attacked him every day over it. And that's really, I think, what did him in.
0: And then obviously lots of these other districts have, have, uh, A Very strong sort of left, uh, you know, left operation in in certain parts of Brooklyn and Queens that, you know, were um, were activated and found found the candidates to unseat the incumbents with a with a very strong primary operation, Mm -hmm. Um, different different politics in some of those. Rise and resist.
1: Then they were coming up in Jackson Heights and you had, you know, and you also had the mayor was behind it in some respects.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was angry. The, the um, old
1: mayor.
0: Yes. <laughs> the old Don't
1: mayor. underestimate. Really, do not underestimate what Andrew Cuomo did to us.
0: What do you mean he by com- that?
1: So he refused to endorse our members. He refused to engage uh, because he felt it was a threat to him. Mm-hmm.
0: And after all the compromising and work together that you'd done, you felt he should have stayed loyal and, and helped win those primaries in twenty eighteen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. hmm Interesting. But, you know, full silly me expecting loyalty in politics.
0: All right. right. In our in our last moments here, um, you, as I mentioned in the opening, were uh, very supportive of Eric Adams in last year's primary. Is that should we expect to see you next working in uh, city government with your old pal Jimmy Otto? Uh, Where where do we where are we going to find your next chapter, do you think?
1: When 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 I when I figure that out, you'll be the first I let know. Although I did tell that to Zach Fink, so I can't. I
0: honestly say that, well, but suffice, get to us say, on speaker yeah.
1: <laughs> suffice to say um, uh, my career in public service is not over.
0: All right. 32 all right.
1: years is not long enough.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. is, is city government on the, on the list of possibilities? It,
1: suffice to say my career <laughs> in public service is not over. <laughs> but all right, all you right.
0: If you, if you were going to go back into um, government in a different form, or it sounds like you will. Um, and there were, certain issues you were going to tackle, would it be back into things related to labor, or do you have other areas you really want to focus on in the next chapter?
1: I I, I, I don't know. Um again. Are I'll you, you
0: know. are you going to finish this term?
1: Um I, I I think so. You
0: think so? Okay. You know people people resign and you know uh I you know, I've never since since I'm
1: let me think my first job I was 15. I was a waitress. I have not been unemployed since I'm 15.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: I, I, you have to have another job before you resign.
0: Well, yeah, <laughs> but the, all right. Well, I now can that... go back
1: to waiting tables. I really yeah. enjoyed doing that. <laughs> spent 17 years in the restaurant
0: business. Yeah. Well, now that the session's over, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of those meetings will be forthcoming uh, and we'll see. All right. Any, uh, any closing thoughts here, State Senator Diane Sabino, any, um, anything on government service, anything on your career in the legislature we haven't touched on that you want to highlight for people, any advice to people uh, just getting into government, uh, any, any closing thoughts here, any reflections?
1: Well, I would highly encourage people to think about a career in public service. Uh, because we desperately need smart people but, but we also need you know thoughtful people it's not about you it's about you know doing good things for people uh, and i don't think that we have enough of that now we have you know too many people with and their egos are too big don't think about your twitter feed don't ask me what i call twitter okay <laughs> it's not ready it's not, it's not for you know pg but people really should approach government service with about what you can accomplish for as many people on the way out the door uh, because the truth is, five minutes after you're gone, no one's going to remember your name. Nah, uh, I you don't know about, about yourself. Oh, trust me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unless we name a bridge after you, and then they'll complain about mm-hmm.
0: it later on. <laughs> the <laughs> but, traffic. All right. Well, thanks for the time and the thoughts. And we'll look forward to seeing what your next chapter is. State Senator Diane Savino uh, is a Democrat representing the 23rd District, including parts of Staten Island and Brooklyn. Uh, appreciate the time and be well. Good time, then. Thank you. Good talking to you. You too.